You're listening to Middle East Analysis, a podcast series taking a close look at the Middle East North Africa region. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Middle East Analysis. You may, might hear that I'm a little bit upbeat. That's because I enjoy this podcast. It's a great podcast with my good friend, Dr. Harry Hagopian, who we will say hello to in a sec. But just to introduce the, the whole idea this month, we are having a bit of a, how can I put it, presidential, prime ministerial, parliamentary type of podcast this month, as there are sort of new leaders popping up everywhere all over the Middle East, North Africa. It kind of strikes me, because I know our our good friend Harry Hagopian does speak French, it's a bit of a plus ça change, plus c'est la même chose. Do you like that, Harry? Bit of French I love that, James. (laughs) (laughs) I couldn't resist it. You know how awful I am at both pronunciation and languages. So I thought I'd give that a, a little whirl. So yes, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Is that the case in these realities that we're going to be talking about? Because we will talk about Iran, and uh, the new president-elect there. And Harry, you will have a laugh at me when I try and pronounce some of these names, but we'll do that shortly. Israel, of course, a new prime minister there for elections in two years of stalemate. So that's been a long time coming. Libya. Now, we're expecting elections in December 2021 in Libya and much to talk about there. Algeria was an interesting one that you put forward, Harry, because obviously... Well, listeners, if you check out Harry's tweets, at Harry Hagopian on Twitter, you'll see that Harry quite often gives me my running order. So whatever I think the podcast is going to be about, minutes before I see what it's actually going to be about. So so that's quite useful for me. So we will talk about Algeria because I know that's piqued your interest and there's a little bit more than meets the eye there. And um, yes, Harry, we're going to also, towards the back end of this podcast, we will have your afterthoughts, Harry, or so we used to call them. But it's going to be a bit more of a sort of casual, conversational bit of insight from you on on perhaps those topics that aren't front and centre of the news agenda, but have piqued your interest and um, you can talk to us about. So I will now say hello. Hello, Dr. Harry Hagopian. Hello, James. After this wonderful introduction, there's very little that I can actually add to it. And as you said, plus ça change, plus c'est la même chose. But might I add that your French pronunciation is much better than your Arabic one. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there we go. We'll, um, yeah, we'll start with a region of Farsi. I don't know how your Farsi is. I mean, mine's obviously practically non-existent. I've heard the language as, you know, I quite often rabbit on about having been in Iran way back in 2006 under Ahmadinejad, a conservative. And I suppose that helps us segue into... The new president-elect in Iran, here we go, ready for this, Ebrahim Raisi. Not bad, uh, James, not bad at all. Acceptable? More than acceptable. And just like you, my Farsi is non-existent, except a few compulsory words that you learn when you're visiting the country. But I have been to Iran. I know Iran a bit, and I really, really like the country. And as much as the country, I like the people of Iran, who are a wonderful, hospitable uh, people who do not re- deserve really this ills that they have been challenged with, the economic woes, the social ills, uh, as a consequence of uh, politics, sanctions, uh, wars, etc., etc. But it is a wonderful country and a civilization that is centuries old uh, in Iran, which gives Iranians a sense of certainty of their identity that many other countries that are far more modern and far more contemporary do not necessarily have. And yes, of course, uh, Ibrahim Raisi is the new president-elect of uh, uh, Iran. And uh, what I would only say about this, because I heard very closely and carefully your introduction. And in a sense, yes, we did discuss it. How do we shape Middle East analysis? And I'm going to try and be circumspect with these and perhaps give a little bit more uh, liberal vent to my afterthoughts. But the 
Uh, Ibrahim Raisi is the 12th president in the history of the Islamic Republic. Those who can go back, who are old enough to go back to 1979, when Ayatollah Khomeini flew into Iran from uh, France, from Paris, and the Islamic Revolution uh, started then. It was a huge change in more ways than one in the moors of the country uh, from the times when Uh, the Shah was uh, ruling and the Pahlavi family were ruling Iran. And now we have Ibrahim Raisi who will take over from Rouhani uh, toward the end of August, the 12th in the history of the Islamic Republic. He's currently the chief justice. And one of the things I would say is that he was elected not necessarily because there was nobody else who was eligible or electable, if that word exists, but because the uh, Council of Guardians who vet and choose who can run in these elections brought narrowed the ambit so much that it was inevitable that he was going to be uh, elected. And uh, the turnout itself, uh, James, as some of those of our listeners who followed the event know, was extremely low. It was below 49%. And of those 49% uh, low turnout, 62% of the votes uh, went uh, to him. And now uh, the question is, what will be in his entry? I think the three most important topics that he will have to deal with in his own way. He is known as being ultra-conservative. He's already made a couple of public statements in which he said that he wants to re-examine relations in the region, and by that, of course, he meant principally Saudi Arabia, and that he's as dogmatic and disinterested in America as previous administrations have been. But in that context, I think one topic that will be of great interest to him and which is very important for the whole country is COVID. Now, we are obsessed with our Delta variant in this country. We are obsessed with the shenanigans of our former Secretary for Health, Matt Hancock, uh, microphones, hugs, etc., etc. But in Iran, it is also very rampant, and people don't hear so much about what's happening uh, beyond their borders. So we are perhaps not so much aware of the ravages of COVID in Iran. So I think uh, COVID will be one of the Uh, items that he'd have to deal with and what vaccines to deal with, etc., etc. Another, as I've just mentioned, would be the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia and what could be done to diffuse the tensions between Iran and Saudi Arabia enough for that region not to be a tinderbox. And of course, the third and important one Uh, which has been ongoing, is the JCPOA, the non-nuclear agreement. And where do we go with this? Will it actually become a reality, what I call JCPOA Mark II? Will the negotiating parties, what used to be P5 plus one, now it's P4 plus one, because America and Iran are negotiating through intermediaries in different rooms, would they be able to agree on a revised version of the JCPOA? And would it only focus on the uh, nuclear issue, which is what Iran wants, or would it also uh, focus on the ballistic missiles that Iran has and on its regional uh, policies? And by region, I don't only mean Saudi Arabia. I also mean Iran's impressive influence in places like Syria, Lebanon, Iraq, and Yemen. So these are what uh, they're going to look at. And I think that his election also is a defining mood. It's the zeitgeist, if you want, of the moment for conservatives to look towards Sino-Iranian Uh, China and Iran, and Russo-Iranian, Russia and Iran relations, and not focused like Rouhani and Khatami have done in the past, which is look at the West and think that the final agreement should be with the West. I think there is a slight divergence 
already appearing in Iranian politics, where they're becoming far more involved with Russia and Iran than they're doing with uh, the West. And by the West, I mean the US, but also uh, Europe. And the final point I'll make on Iran and the election of Raisi, people thought, okay, why is the supreme leader, Khamenei, and the Council of Guardians so intent on making, narrowing the field so much that his election would be inevitable. My guess, and it's not an original guess because it's been said by other observers as well, is that Raisi is being groomed to take over as supreme leader of Iran after Khamenei dies because the man is old, the man, he's over 80, uh, Raisi is only 60, and also the fact that he's very ill, and therefore we don't know how long he might last as supreme leader. So I think there was also this intent, make him president now and prepare him to take over, because he's viewed as a disciple, as a student of Khamenei coming from Mashhad, and uh, therefore uh, the conservatives would feel that the country is in safe hands at a time of turbulence worldwide. And that, James, concludeth my take on Iran. <laughs> I have nothing to add. You, it's one of those ask and answer things again. It almost looks like we've prepared for this. <laughs> no, but it will be interesting. And it's another to, to have a bit of a watching brief, isn't it? We have to give um, Raisi a chance, see where indeed he places his focus. Sounds more east than west. We shall see. Now, Israel. We had a very long podcast about Israel-Palestine, didn't we, last month, for fairly obvious reasons after the 11-day conflict. But of course, new prime minister steps in, Naftali Bennett. And as I said in the introduction, four elections in two years of stalemate, it almost looked like nobody was going to be able to take that role from um, the outgoing Benjamin Netanyahu, who, who has been in place for 12 years, a long time. Now, there's much I can ask you, and I, I do need to give you the freedom to say what you want about this. But um, I suppose the obvious questions are, you know, is he his own man? What's his agenda? Will he be the prime minister for the whole of Israel? And then my nagging little question is, will he slow down the settlements? You can take that on as, as you wish. Uh, thank you, James. I probably will not address the general broad questions in this MEA episode because that would take an hour and much more. But I will address your nagging question uh, directly and indirectly by basically saying that uh, you talked about Benjamin Netanyahu. Well, Bibi Netanyahu, uh, like uh, Donald Trump in the United States, had a sense of entitlement that this was a, an almost God-given right for them to be president and prime minister of the USA and of Israel, and who dares challenge them or remove them from office. We saw that uh, play out in the United States in the shabbiest and most grotesque manner, and we saw something not a million miles away from that playing out in Israel as well. But out of office he was voted, and a new prime minister or co-prime minister, alternate prime minister, if you want, was uh, elected in, um, in Israel in the person of Naftali Bennett. A few, question, a few comments I'll make on, on Naftali uh, Bennett and his election. The first thing to say is that the person to whom I give all kudos for putting this very eclectic, almost mutually exclusive coalition cabinet uh, goes to Yair Lapid. Yair Lapid is a centrist, uh, that's the best way I could describe him for my own, from my own vocabulary, from my own political lexicon. He is somebody who was a journalist and somebody who really wanted Netanyahu out and a new uh, team to come and assume the reins of power. And it is his own endless and patient uh, conversations with different people who are so much from opposite ends of the political spectrum in Israel. You have labor and merits on the one hand. You have got Israel Beitenu. Uh, you've got uh, Yamina uh, on the other. You've got uh, 
Yesh Atid, uh, Yair Lapid's own party in the center. So he had to bring all these together and defy the concept uh, in politics of never the twain shall meet. And he did do it in a way that uh, made Naftali Bennett prime minister for the first two years of a four-year mandate. And then he remains uh, alternate prime minister uh, and foreign minister of Israel. And by alternate, I mean that after the first two years of Naftali Bennett being prime minister, he relinquishes that post to Yair Lapid. So they do what Netanyahu and Benny Gantz thought they would do, and then Netanyahu cheated Benny Gantz out of that agreement, which is one of the things uh, about uh, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu. It's all about him, him, him. You started with an, in this intro with a French uh, expression. I'll give you another one. Netanyahu's political mantra is uh, après moi le déluge, uh, after me, I don't care. So, in a sense, uh, we got Naftali Bennett. And when I was commenting uh, unknowingly, in a sense, because it's not my remit, it's not my neighborhood, with elections in the United States, I said, I really do hope that uh, Trump will be defeated in the elections and Joe Biden will become the next president. And so it happened. But I didn't say that because as some people got excited and said, we want Joe Biden in because he will be good for the Palestinians and for the MENA and Gulf regions. That was a million miles away from my thoughts. I didn't think there will be such a radical change in U.S. foreign policy with regard to Israel and the Arab countries and Palestine if Biden replaced Trump. But I wanted somebody who had some moral fiber to him, some integrity to him, in a way that, in my humble opinion, Trump lacked. Ditto with Israel. I didn't particularly think that Naftali Bennett is going to sort of walk into the prime minister's office and then everything will be hunky-dory again and Palestinians and Israelis will start another one of those uh, hugging uh, sessions since hugging is so fashionable these days. The, the hugging sessions uh, between them and old enemies will become friends again. I wasn't thinking of that. I didn't think that would happen and certainly won't happen easily. Uh, under Bennett, just as it didn't under Netanyahu. Why? Because Benjamin Netanyahu was an opportunist. Uh, his attitude and his policies toward Palestinians and Palestine conflict were more drawn in ways that would keep the ultra-right and the religious right with him, so he stays prime minister, and by staying prime minister, he not only stayed as in the locus of power, but he also then managed to, in his opinion, avoid the judicial fallout from the three court cases in the high court against him. Whereas with Naftali Bennett, I think there is more belief in his ultra-right and ultra-religious uh, beliefs. This man uh, wears a hand-knitted kippah, a skull cap. This man is somebody who at least is not a very hard line, as I can see him, a uh, religious uh, Jew, but he is somebody who takes his Judaism more seriously and with more integrity than Benjamin Netanyahu did, but he also believes inherently that the whole Eretz Yisrael, the whole land of Israel, is to the Jews, and the Palestinians don't have much uh, to do uh, with it. There was a famous, I don't think you would know this one, uh, James, there was a famous conversation that was had way before he became prime minister, and way before the last elections which brought him into power, where he was having a conversation in studio on air with an Arab member of the Israeli parliament, the Knesset. And the Arab-Israeli uh, Knesset members said, you cannot advocate settlements in Palestinian areas. And his answer was, listen, we Jews have had this land for 3,500 years when you guys were swinging from trees like monkeys. 
And this kind of belief, this kind of attitude by the prime minister now does not necessarily convince me or uh, reassure me that he's going tomorrow to go extend the hand of friendship and tell the Palestinians, be that uh, uh, Mahmoud Abbas in Ramallah or in his context, worse, uh, Haniye and the others in uh, Gaza, that, okay, guys, let's do this. We'll give you most of the land that's occupied back to you, and then we'll, uh, we'll sign on the dotted lines. That's not going to happen. That's part of dreamland uh, at the moment. And Naftali Bennett will certainly, certainly not do that. And the question for me is not whether he will produce this or not. I mean, there might be some surprises. Biden, who is, as I just said, as pro-Israel as any American president of his generation will be, might be able to call for a big conference that might bring a lot of players together. The world is full of these big conferences that come together, pat each other on the back virtually or otherwise, and then nothing comes out of it. These things might happen, but that's not action. That's part of inertia. Uh, And it's going to remain, and the Palestinian situation is going to remain bad. Uh, But I think that this government, which is a government of opposites, and that could completely fragment, unravel, and fall, if only one or two members of the coalition pull their parties out of uh, the coalition agreement, I think it's going to focus on things that are more achievable, domestic issues, issues to do with uh, Iran, because there is more cohesion there than on Israel-Palestine, and avoid the big subjects that might thwart the whole Zen feeling of this government. And that, I think, uh, where um, Naftali Bennett is uh, going to find himself, and whether it will last or not, I don't know. But I really do not see him stopping settlements, and that comes to your nagging question. I don't think he's going to suddenly change uh, his political opinion from somebody who thinks the whole of the land is is for Israel. He used to be head or member of the Yesha Council, which was the Settlers Council in a previous life before he became prime minister. Nobody can have such a radical uh, change Uh, in their political viewpoints. So uh, I think that's going to continue. And if we look at what's happening these days, today, today, as we record this uh, podcast in Silwan, what we see happening in Sheikh Jarrah, what we see happening in uh, Abu Dis, in the Palestinian East Jerusalem territories where Arab-Palestinian residents are being kicked out of their houses, where the houses are being uh, demolished so that settlers can come in or parks can be built. That, to me, I think, defines the mentality of how Israeli politicians in general and Israeli Jews in their majority, and I say in their majority in the sense of well over 50 plus percent of the population think. They think this is our land, take it or lump it. And I think this goes against all biblical teachings and this goes against all international law precepts. But then again, does anybody really these days think about what the Bible said so many millennia ago or what international law says? I have my own doubts, James. Well, they do if it works for them, I think is the way I see it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Should we segue into North Africa now, Harry? Let's do that. So, well, actually, I say North Africa, we have two realities we're going to speak about. We will start with Libya and the fact that it looks like there will be elections in December in some six months time, delayed by three years following Haftar's military campaign in the east. Now, Correct me if I'm wrong, we have the Government of of National Unity, the GNU, that was sworn in on the 15th of March, and I believe its job, was it not, is to kind of bring the country towards these presidential and parliamentary elections. With these elections, Harry, you know, we've asked this question before and no doubt we'll ask it afterwards, but 
how do you think the elected people, when it actually happens, will get the foreign troops and the mercenaries out of the country? Because that's the question we always have, isn't it? That is a good question, uh, James, about Libya, and you're absolutely right to ask it. Now, in order to answer Libya, let me just basically say that if we go back to the death of uh, the Libyan colonel Muammar Gaddafi at the start of the Arab revolutionary uprisings, People were unsure how it's going to go. I remember our own prime minister, then David Cameron, going to visiting Libya and uh, promising support for a new era in Libya. And the people were excited there because they would be able now to breathe more freely. And then, of course, we know what happened. Uh, There were lots of guns around. There were lots of uh, militias around. There were no institutions whatsoever because Gaddafi had made sure that there would be no institutions, but there would be only him as the reference of power. And therefore, all hell broke loose and everything basically collapsed and Libya was divided, and I'm being simplistic for the sake of brevity, Libya was divided or was fractured into east and west. East we had uh, Benghazi and with it a strong man called Haftar. And on the other hand, we had the west with the capital Tripoli with different prime ministers and politicians taking over and again as i said earlier never the twain shall meet or so it seemed unfortunately at the time and this is where we are and both sides had their own set of supporters haftar and uh, benghazi had uh, the united arab emirates had egypt and to a smaller extent had uh, france supporting it Whereas on the other side of the political spectrum, you had Turkey, you had Italy, you had Qatar supporting what was the recognized power in Libya. And then something happened. Haftar overplayed his hand. He was stopped. And Turkey played a big role in that. And I think it was positive from my perspective at that stage. And the situation became one where both sides realized that this was a standoff that was bleeding the country dry and that both sides were fighting and fighting with more people killed, with less oil, it's an oil-rich country, with less oil being sold out, less money coming into the country, and the country was basically heading toward meltdown with proxies from one side or the other egging those parties on for their own interests. Now, when the proxies realized that it is no longer in their interest to have this divide and this violence in the country, then the key parties inside, the protagonists themselves, also realized that, well, maybe it is time to sit around a table, even if the table is actually two tables in two different rooms, and try to come to some sort of an agreement that would safeguard, that would salvage Libya as we have known it or as we would like to see it in the future. And that is what brought those disparate parties from the East and the West together. There was an interim uh, government that was formed. There was an agreement in order to have elections, uh, as you mentioned, toward the end of uh, December. And the last uh, move that was made in this direction to date was when representatives of uh, this new interim uh, national unity government they joined foreign stakeholders at what was known as the Berlin II Conference, an international conference in Germany, co-sponsored by the UN and Germany a couple of weeks, three weeks ago. And the gathering, this gathering, this conference, there have been so many conferences, you wonder what's their usefulness. This gathering aimed to renew foreign commitment uh, to the peace process and laid a special emphasis not only on the holding of elections at the end of 2021, James, but also, as you said, the departure of foreign forces and mercenaries. And to me, that is one key issue. Who is going to make sure that those forces go out and which ones will go out, which ones will not, which ones will go out before 
the others. You've got Turkish armed presence in Libya. You've got mercenaries. You've got Syrian and Janjaweed uh, mercenaries uh, in the country as well. You've got Wagner elements, which directly or indirectly are related to the Russian presidency. All these people are wreaking havoc in the country at the expense of the country and its residents. Who is going to be able to tell these people whether the Wagner, uh, which have the backing of Russia and which are a militant militia of their own, to go out? Who's going to tell Turkey you have to pull out now when Turkey actually at least entered the Libyan seam on the back of an agreement with the official representatives of the Libyan government? Who is going to tell those mercenaries, the Janjaweed and the Syrians and the others, to just pack and leave? This is the big question, and this is what everybody is wrestling with. Who's going to tell the Americans that it's time to pull back? Who's going to make that imprint on the country? And this being one of the main, main issues, it has not yet been resolved. And one of the best analysts on Libya, and I've said this to you before in a previous episode of Middle East Analysis of MEA, is Claudia Gazzini from Crisis Group. And she said uh, in a comment about Berlin too, that if I remember correctly, that the conference injected, she said, new dynamism into what had become a languid political process. And it also helped the UN's struggling mediation efforts in order to get those forces out, in order to get both sides uh, talk together in good faith rather than at each other. But Claudia Gazzini added, and this is quite true and to the point, that the implementation of the political, the military, and the financial tracks, she always comes back to this, that form the backbone of the peace process still remain tangible obstacles. Who's going to decide on what politically? Who's going to have what military and political authority and power? And what's going to happen with the money and all the oil receipts that the government will bring in once uh, this agreement becomes a reality and once elections take at the end of the year. That basically is where we are with uh, Libya today. Hopefulness, but still uncertainty. Well, I think a lot of it's going to be in 2022 where things become clear, really, isn't it? As in terms of whether those foreign meddlers and uh, mercenaries actually are uh, sent packing, as it were. So it's going to be an interesting 12 months, I think, Harry. I agree with you, James. Uh, if the elections were to take place, and I'm not yet sure that they would on time, but if they were to take place, that would be one of the building blocks. And then after that, as you said, how will all the other pieces fall into place in order to constitute the shape of a half-functioning state? Well, I mean... We cover North Africa, and so I'm sure we will pick it up again, of course. But let's move sideways, quite literally, to Algeria now. We don't often talk about Algeria. This may even be the first time that we've spoken about Algeria at any length. Elections, of course, as we mentioned, another low turnout, apparently less than a third, very low turnout there. The president, and now again, it's it's time for the Harry Hagopian pronunciation unit here, Abdel Majid Tabune. Almost. Taboon. <laughs> Taboon. Important. I stand corrected. Now, the FLN party apparently won 105 votes, which was short of the 204 majority needed. What have you got to say about Algeria and, and potential reforms in the country? James, I have less to say about Algeria than I've had about Iran, Israel and uh, Libya for a very simple reason. I know less about it and I'm less involved with Algeria than I am with the other countries. So not only will that reflect the brevity of my comments, but it will also reflect the rare occasions when we talk, you and I, about Algeria because you kindly do not want to highlight 
my black spots on this uh, country. No, certainly not. But you did say that you felt that they were extremely telling presidential elections. Oh, they what were did you mean by that? Extremely telling. Yes. Thank you for uh, pointing me in that direction. For me, the and you basically pretty much summarized what happened on the back of the elections. For me, there have been two sets of revolutionary uprisings in uh, the Arab world. I owe this as much to my own analysis as I do to the wonderful Rami Khouri, who has helped me use the expression revolutionary uprisings when I refer to what we used to call the Arab Spring and movements and what have you. The first one, we've seen it, we've covered it ad nauseum, you and I, in different institutional frameworks and also freely in our own independent private episodes. The second, uh, the second wave of uh, uprisings basically took place in Sudan, took place in Algeria, and took place in Lebanon, and to some extent took place in Iraq. What does the election in Algeria show with the reconsolidation of the FLN and Taboo's mandate? It shows to me one thing, and this is what I would like to leave as a food for thought for our listeners today. The Arab world is divided pretty much between the people, the citizens, if you can call them citizens, because citizens means rights and responsibilities, whereas in much of the Arab world, not the whole Arab world, but much of the Arab world, uh, uh, men and women living in those countries have responsibilities and have very little rights. So let's call them citizens or subjects or whatever you want. Uh, those uh, You've got the people and you've got the rulers. The people want freedom. The people want dignity. The people want to have the right to express their own mind to have the fundamental freedoms that you and I, despite all the whinging and wailing we might do in the UK, in Europe, in elsewhere, at least we have some freedoms that we can use and that support us whenever necessary. In most of these countries, the equation is very simple. You do as I tell you, or you shut up. In other words, it's my way or the highway, and that's what a ruler tells his subject. The first set of revolutionary uprisings were basically against this. They were against, they wanted, the people were clamoring not for violent uh, riots, but for dignity and for bread, which pretty much defines the state of affairs. Ditto with the second a set of uprisings as well. The people are saying, let us breathe. They want to get rid of this George Floyd moment where you have the rulers pressing on their necks and not allowing them to, to breathe. And you have the rulers, what I call the counter-revolutionaries, who also want to make sure that the people do not move, do not get what they don't deserve because if they were to push their, uh, their demands a bit too far, then all these thrones and ivory towers would begin to shake and the rulers don't want to lose their power. That is where it stands at the moment. You have seen it in Syria. You have seen it time and again in all these uh, countries that have been subject to these ebbs and flows. The same is happening in Algeria. Algeria, which I thought through the Hirak, through the uh, popular movement, was beginning to effect changes. It led or helped lead to the removal of one uh, president and the coming into power of another one. But what this election shows in Algeria is basically a microcosm of what is happening across the whole Arab world and beyond the Arab world. I mean, even in our democracies, uh, there is so much intrigue happening that if we really were to sit down and, and analyze our democracies, we would 
not only realize that they're very weak, but we would realize that under the guise of democracy, a lot of undemocratic things are happening all over the place. But we're not going to digress, and I don't want you to allow me to go there. But coming back to our neighborhood, our rough neighborhood in the MENA region, it's basically that in every single country, what is happening has been reflected by those elections. Those in power, whatever happened with the election or however the results were counted, however the ballots that were cast were counted, whatever the reason, there is clearly a divide between the ruled and the ruler. The ruler doesn't want to give power to anybody but himself and his retinue, and I focus on the his because it's usually masculine and male. And on the other hand, you have got the the ruled who are saying, give us this dignity, give us this freedom, let us be able to afford our uh, bread, and they're not allowed it. And what happened in Algeria is what is happening everywhere else. And my only straw of hope that I have is that this cannot continue. To use a term that I've used ages ago with you, James, the genie is out of the bottle. These revolutionary uprisings, no matter the number of farcical elections that have taken place, in Syria, uh, the president won over 90% of the votes. And I, I laughed. Half the Syrian population are not in the country to vote. This farcical situation will not continue ad eternum forever. It's going to stop one day. How will it stop? When will it stop? What will be the sacrifices that will lead to the change that people want to see happen? That is the big question. And I'm always not reassured, but comforted by the fact that when we talk about what I personally, given my Francophile tendencies that you know well, if I were to look at the French Revolution and the way France has become an imperfect land of liberty, of democracy, of fraternity and equality, it didn't happen in 10 years. Remember, the revolutionary uprising started in 2010. Today we're in 2021. That's only 11 years, a decade plus one. The revolutions in America and in uh, France and elsewhere took centuries before slowly we emerged into an institutional viable democracy. So it will happen. Will it happen uh, soon? I doubt that very much. I just hope that it will happen soon enough so that the, uh, the region whether in Algeria, whether in uh, Morocco, in Libya, whether in other countries across the whole neighborhood, will the people will become not only subjects in the negative sense of the word, but as Adian, a wonderful uh, NGO in Lebanon, says and fights for citizenship rights, will be assumed by all the men and women of the region. That, to me, is when that seminal moment kicks in. And we're still very far from it, whether in the elections in Syria a couple of months ago or whether in the elections in Algeria a couple of uh, weeks ago. Well, as you say, Harry, 11 years isn't that much in that sort of scheme of things. And perhaps that's why these turnouts are so low. You can't fool the people as to whether they genuinely have a say or not. If less than a third are turning up, I would say that's the people saying, what's the point? Absolutely, absolutely. And you know what, James, I was just thinking, We, I talked about centuries-old revolutions in the West before things came out to be what they are today. And they are so weak and fragile today. We've seen it in Washington, D.C. We see it in our own country, in the U.K., and we see it elsewhere across uh, the West as well. But it could also be because we feel it's been so much longer than 11 years because of the 24-7 news coverage. 
I mean, 200 years ago, 300 years ago, people didn't have social media. People didn't have this. I remember when the Armenian genocide happened during World War One. not many people were aware of it then, just as no, not many people are aware of it now, because coverage was not immediate. Whereas when we moved to the Jewish Holocaust, when we moved to the genocide in Rwanda, in uh, Serbia, in Darfur, uh, elsewhere, people became more polarized because it was in your face, on your screens every day. And that is where we have to put a little bit of perspective in all this. Yeah, very fair point indeed. Now we are hurtling through this podcast and we were going to shift back to the Middle East now to talk about Lebanon, a country very dear to your heart, I know. And I don't know what there is to say about this, apart from the fact that it it does appear to be something of a total meltdown. And I was thinking back, talking about those phrases that, that we've spoken about over the years on Middle East analysis. And I remember your phrase of when Syria sneezes, Lebanon catches a cold. Well, it certainly seems that when anyone in the region sneezes at the moment, Lebanon falls sick, doesn't it? So, I mean, you know, lack of medicine, petrol, bread, you've mentioned in more than one reality today, that rush to leave, the brain drain. I mean, it's almost like a sort of 20th century post-war meltdown, isn't it, in, in Lebanon? James, you pretty much summarized what I will have said, because I wasn't going to repeat what you and I have discussed in the past about Lebanon a wonderful country of the past. Uh, My dad did his medical studies in Lebanon at the Jesuitical University, and I have come to know Lebanon quite well as well. Uh, It's a wonderful country. It used to be the Switzerland of the Middle East, and now look at where it is. It is total meltdown, as you said, For instance, only today, again, only today, we talked about today with what's happening in Silwan in East Jerusalem. We also talk about what's happening today when uh, subsidies were partly removed from petrol prices in Lebanon. The prices shot up by 35%. uh, And now in order to fill a tank for a car of petrol, you need to fork out 200,000 Lebanese liras, which is pretty much the equivalent of what somebody might uh, get in a, from a modest salary uh, for the whole month. Uh, you have you have the the Lebanese currency, which used to be pegged at one thousand five hundred. Then the government started dealing with it on an official peg of three thousand nine hundred liras to the dollar. And now you go to the black market; every dollar is worth eighteen thousand uh, Lebanese lira. So uh, it's it's. It's mind-boggling where it is going. The price of bread has shot up. Uh, Unemployment is shooting up. And of course, when you talk about these things, it's not only because of the meltdown. It's also because of what the politicians are doing. The politicians are fighting with each other. They are refusing to save their own country, and they're more interested in their own self-centered personal interests than they are in the interests of the citizens of Lebanon, the people living in Lebanon. I'll give you an example. You talk about petrol. Okay. Now, petrol prices, if you go to Lebanon, to Beirut or elsewhere, today Tripoli in the north or wherever, you will have to probably queue, until today, you would have had to queue for about two hours at least, in order to get to a pump and fill your car with petrol. Today, with the uh, uptick in prices by about 35%, maybe that might be a little bit better. Why? It might be a little bit better, not only because some people would no longer fill their cars, they don't have the money to pay for it, which is true, but also because the minute the government removed some of the subsidies on petrol and raised the prices, the people started who had kept the petrol in ships at ports. They started bringing it in and delivering it to stations. They had it there waiting for the prices to go up because they knew it would before they start supplying the petrol stations with petrol because they wanted to make more profit. When you go into pharmacies and you ask for the pharmacy for your hormone replacement 
tablets, your antibiotic, your gastric tablets or whatever, and they tell you we don't have it. Part of it is because they haven't got it, they haven't manufactured it. Part of it is because they're holding it, waiting for the prices to go up when they put it back, stack it back on the shelves in order to make uh, more money from it. Part of it also is something else. Those warlords and militias who control the poorest borders of Lebanon, no matter how much the army tries to make them less porous, some of that wheat for bread, some of that petrol, where is it going? It's going into Syria, where it's being sold at a higher price. So it's not only a question of an economic meltdown in the institutional sense, but it is also the political and criminal intent of people who are basically bleeding the Lebanese dry. And it is sad. It is sad that people are leaving the country. People don't want to have anything to do with the country. And you see a beautiful, what uh, I think it was Pope John Paul II who called Lebanon a message. When you see that message shriveling away in front of your eyes, I saw a picture, a friend of mine sent me a picture of taken from a restaurant in southern Beirut in Junier, which was so beautiful. It's better than any postcard that you can get from Switzerland. And yet, those assets that uh, Lebanon has aren't being used because of the petty-mindedness of people who are out for a fast buck or who are out for keeping their power and the expression that I've used in the past of uh, Nero fiddles on the roof while Rome burns. Yeah, it's very sad, actually. Now, Harry, this is the point of the podcast where, with some trepidation, I literally, with no knowledge of what you're going to say, um, offer the floor to you. Now, how do you want to start with your afterthoughts for this podcast? My afterthoughts for this uh, podcast, James, and I daren't even ask you how long we've been talking because I don't want to know. Afterthoughts are going to be both serious and not uh, so serious. Let me start with the serious one. The serious one that I want to talk about for a couple of minutes, or at least to refer to for a couple of minutes, is something that has disturbed me immensely. And that is the arrest and subsequent death of Nizar Banat, a Palestinian human rights activist in his late 40s, I believe, living in Hebron, who was arrested by the Palestinian security forces, and then a few hours after his arrest, he died. And when the post-mortem was done, it showed uh, huge uh, signs and bruising that he'd been beaten. Now, why do I highlight Nizar Banat? I highlight it for two reasons. One, to show how Palestinian realities are turning sour, how people are being arrested and uh, killed, basically. There is no other word that I can use for it. Because they are seeking, and it ties in with this bit about we were talking about revolutionary uprisings and what does it mean. Because they want freedom. They're against authoritarian regimes. They're against a regime in Ramallah that wants to have a hold, a grip on power. They're against a regime in Gaza which believes in its own ethos and its own uh, principles more than in those of the country as a whole or the conflict as a whole. This is what's happening today. Uh, this man, I, I, I'm not even sure, I think he was a carpenter in a previous life, arrested, beaten, died all within hours just because he used to use his Facebook page extensively in order to uh, in order to write about the abuses he saw in Palestinian society in the West Bank. And if I can digress, by the way, uh, James, I talked about Facebook. He was uh, very keen on Facebook. So is uh, the Prime Minister of Israel, Naftali Bennett, by the way. So I worry. I worry where Palestine is going because of two things. One, 
I remember when I was growing up and sort of getting my stri- stripes in track two diplomacy and negotiations and working with churches and organizations on the conflict between Israel and the Palestinians. I always was proud to say that Palestinians aspire for self-determination, for statehood in a secular and free uh, future. And what I see today is that this is not happening now, that even Palestine with its lofty ideals and its noble quest for self-determination is actually being dragged into the gutter of self-centered power plays and politics. And that worries me because it changes the whole fulcrum of political activism within Palestine and the hopes that Palestinians have for a country that would be a model, just like Lebanon was a model, uh, for the whole region. Moreover, and the second point I make, this is the local and the more abstract, perhaps academic point I make, is that authoritarianism abuse is inbuilt in powerful people in general, in politicians in general. Not all of them I know. But in the region that I'm sort of familiar with a little bit, I realize that. And that this abusive power-playing proclivity that a lot of rulers and a lot of people have is almost natural. And you cannot say, oh, if we have democracy, we will rid ourselves of this abuse. What is democracy? How do you institute uh, democracy? Is it a Montesquieu principle that you graft into a society? Or is it that you get rid of those uh, conspiracy ideas, these QAnon ideas, these accelerationist ideas that have found such fertile ground in the USA and in different ways are also manifesting themselves in the MENA region? Is that how you do it? Or do you do it by helping set up institutions, consolidating institutions that would help keep democracy on track and that would help uh, check any abuse, like what happened to Nizar Banat, like what happens to others in the Palestinian territories, yes, but also across the whole uh, region. Uh, Whether you look at the forced imprisonments, at the abuse, at the threats, at the torture of people who are arrested, whether in Syria, whether in Iraq, whether in the United Arab Emirates, whether in uh, other countries, and you sort of suddenly realize that the region is not only rough, it's also abusive. And how can we deal with that abuse? And what do we do in order to check, to stop that abuse and create hope? And for me, The only way to do it, in my opinion, the only reason why the invasion of the hill on the 6th of January in D.C. failed is because of the institutional framework of the United States. And if the Americans think that they're they're done, they're very much mistaken. We all have to be vigilant, and it's that vigilance that helps us. That is my serious message, which in my opinion, is far more important than whatever else I've said today because it is something, it's, it's, it's the building block for a whole region more than about this bit of politics and that bit of politics. Yeah, and it's a, it's a strong message too. But I mean, I, I'm sort of somewhat drawn back to your 11 years point about the Arab Spring, self-determinism and so forth because they're kind of similar points in a way. The human rights that we take for granted the the upholding of our human rights here. I mean, it seems to me that that's going to take longer than, than should be the case in the Middle East and North Africa. But, you know, like you said, with the genie being out of the bottle, people won't rest until ultimately they have that. But again, as we've said in previous podcasts, possibly not in our lifetime. 
Absolutely, absolutely. And and it really shook me to the core, much more than even you who know me pretty much quite well, uh, James. Even you don't realize how much I was shaken to the core when I heard the news of what had happened to Nizar Banat. I don't know mm. the guy from Adam. I've never spoken with him. I've never had any dealings with him. I haven't. It's what it says, isn't it? It's exactly. What that, yeah. I haven't even read any of his blogs or his Facebook postings. But he represents to me a whole culture of violence and abuse across much of this neighborhood. There are others, but I don't understand them uh, much better than I do this region. And it just the mind boggles at how this abuse is what people call rule. When you throw everybody in jail because they disagree with you or they speak out in support of human rights, and we in the West, because of our own interests, economic or otherwise, we support them instead of saying, look, we've had prior experience with all of this. We know what's happening to you guys. We will support you. It's, it's, it's a muddled world. And it's not a world I'm proud of these days. To be honest with you, I'm not. And part of the reason why I'm withdrawing a little bit from this public world uh, and becoming more uh, into my own uh, navel-gazing, if you want, is because I, I look around me and I say, I really don't like what I see. Anything I look, I don't like what I see. Even I don't like what I see happening in the politicking world in our own country, in our own uh, European continent. And I say, no, I'd rather sort of draw back. And I'm fortunate enough to be able to do that. So it's 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 a muddled world it's an abusive world it's a corrupt world it's a world that makes me sad and nizar banat did not need to die just because he uh, wanted to express his own opinion well it's a, it's very sinister that and sad as well but i'm just going to ask you harry whether you are going to leave us on an upbeat note I'm this going podcast. to leave you on an upbeat note of sorts, uh, James, and I'm going to bring us back to the UK. The unveiling, in a couple of days' time, of the late Princess Diana's statue at Kensington Palace. Okay, I'm not into iconoclasm myself. I don't like it in churches. I don't like it in statues, because funnily enough, statues that are worshipped and adored uh, today, in 200 years' time, might be toppled and thrown into uh, rivers. So that's not what really excites me. But what really I find interesting is that her two sons, uh, William and Harry, are going to be there. Is this going to be an opportunity for them to speak with each other, to communicate? Is it going to be another one like the funeral of their grandfather? Is this going to be a a moment of reconciliation or not? I mean, as far as I'm concerned, uh, uh, Prince uh, Harry, the Duke of Sussex, is basically speaking right, left and center a bit too much. But let's see what happens out of that and let's see what this statue will say to the people of this country. And finally, and the last point I will say, and this is the most important point in this whole podcast, James, is that Anton Dubeck will replace Bruno Tognoli on Strictly Come Dancing next episode. And there you go, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> credibility shot to pieces. <laughs> credibility shattered, credibility completely removed. Now you know why I'm withdrawing to work from the world and going I think to global gazing. When I start thinking about Anton and Bruno Tonioli, people will say, is this the guy who was giving us a lecture on democracy? But... <laughs> Well, do you know what? I, I don't know why I'm doing this, but I feel somewhat inclined to let you off. I think after, a, you know, a very heavy podcast where we've covered so much ground, you know, we've gone through North Africa, swathes of the Middle East. We've talked about the relatively pessimistic outlook in, in certain states and, and how we look to the future. But we think it might be some way off before we can talk positively about these things. And you bring it all the way back to Anton Dubeck. What can I, bring I say? It back to Anton Dubeck. The man has been 
desperate to become one of the judges sitting at that table. He's never had a track record of winning any trophy in all the years that he's been dancing with so-called celebrities. And don't let me start on celebrities because those people defined as celebrities on different quiz shows and whatever I mean. Z-list, Harry. Z-list. Z-list? No, no, it's <laughs> Z-list. But, but uh, the man finally becomes judge for one year and maybe uh, the Italian gesticulator will come back next year once COVID is away. But yeah, I thought this was funny. And I thought to myself, what can I do to shock James a little bit out of the usual conversations we had? Because we talk a lot off and on mic. And so I thought, what can I say? I mean, you're not going to be shocked by the statue of Lady Di. But I thought... Let me talk about Strictly Come uh, Dancing, and that might get a reaction. And was I not right? <laughs> well, you were. And I think also you've given our listeners a little glimpse into those off-mic Hagopian predilections, dare I say. <laughs> More than they wanted, perhaps. I don't know. Or maybe they, they too might share something of a mutual admiration for Anton Dubeck and, I'm detecting, Bruno Tognoli, the flamboyant yes. Italian. Yes, exactly, James. Harry, what can I say? If it hadn't been such a heavy podcast, I might have cut that bit at the end, but I I now have no choice because it has to finish on a a more positive note after everything we've discussed. I will say thank you very much for for June's podcast. Um, Much to discuss next time, as always there is. And I think, Harry, we will try in order to lighten it for people over the summer months to just take a little bit of time off our lengthy podcast. But that was very good. I really learnt a lot and enjoyed it as always. And um, I'll be sure to watch Strictly Come Dancing. James, James, listen, uh, we covered, we went all the way from climax to pathos. That's fine with this episode. And you're the boss. You decide how long. You you said that I'm a dictator. I tell you five minutes <laughs> before uh, we go on air what we're going to talk about. All that is, of course, true. I'm Armenian. I'm bossy. But uh, uh, having said that, I listen to you. I respect your views. And more than that, I appreciate your guidance and cherish your friendship. So in that sense, I'm always open uh, to what you have to say. If you want us to go summer light, Wimbledon light, strawberry and cream light. I'm happy uh, to do that as well. Oh, yes, don't forget the PIMS number one. And uh, all that is fine with me. But thank you for uh, your efforts. Uh, During your free time, you lumbered with me once a month. But Middle East analysis is important because it reaches a constituency that doesn't always listen to what ordinary folk think and talk about outside those important and powerful uh, corridors. And in that sense, I think we are lending somebody a helping hand uh, somewhere. And uh, other than that, I think I should shut up because we're way (laughs) over time. (laughs) Harry, uh, it remains for me to say thank you. Thank you ever so much. Uh, we'll allow it this time. We'll we'll have a lengthy podcast this time and call it a pre, pre-summer podcast because you know what? Eight realities, maybe nine realities. You're not going to get that done in much under an hour unless you really are going very surface level. And I think you wanted this time to make some slightly deeper points about the region as a whole. So I thank you for it. And thank you to our listeners. We had a thousand plays last time, which is modest, but for us rather good, I think. So yeah, Onwards and upwards, Harry, and I look forward to speaking to you next month.